Let's pray. Our Lord and God in heaven, we come before you with praise, with adoration, with so much thanks, Father. Father, we consider all that you've done, we are amazed. When we consider how you provide for us, Father, we can't begin to describe it all. When we count the blessings that you've put on our lives, we quickly lose count. You are truly great and glorious and wonderful. Lord, we thank you for everything. Mostly, Father, we thank you for the love that was so deep that you were willing to send your Son to die to save us from our sins. Father, help us to love you more each day. Help us to truly understand that kind of love and to do what we can to put it to practice in our lives, to return it to you as best we can and to share it with each other. I look for opportunities to take it into the community that we live in and throughout the world so that every person, wherever they might be, can come to know how great you are and how great your love is for us. Father, it's been a difficult year in many ways for us, but we know that throughout all of the tough times you were there. And Father, we've had many opportunities to rejoice this year, and we thank you for those, and we give you the glory. And as we look forward to another year, Father, it's our prayer that you will guide us, that you will strengthen us, that you will give us courage to go into the community, that again you will help us to be filled with the kind of love that you had for us, that together we would be the church, the bride that we should be, beautiful in all ways. Father, we ask that you be with us now as we continue this service. Continue to bless us and watch over us. It's again our desire that this will be pleasing to you, Father. Again, we say thank you for everything. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll be reading from 2 Samuel uh, 12, 1 through 7. The Lord sent, to Nathan, <coughs> sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the, uh, to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for <clears throat> the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He said he must pay <clears throat> for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. 
Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Well, surely David confronted Nathan and he caused, Nathan caused David to, to look in the mirror. Perhaps this is the time of year when similarly we need to, to look a little bit in the mirror and see where, where are we? Where are we spiritually? And this is the Sunday night crowd and you know probably our Sunday night crowd are best attenders, probably the ones who are most active in the church, probably those that do the works of this particular congregation for the most part. By the measure of attendance, well, you know, we're probably in a pretty good place. We certainly, we have a great care for one another, and at least uh, we, on big events, we're there for people who are in the hospital, for when people are born and when people die. We're definitely, our class activities are strong, and you know, in some ways, you could say that we are, in our classes, somewhat of a social club. But you know, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters. We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to have a strong society of Christians. Now, we don't want our social clubs to become separate from one another. But we want to function together as a church. And I think we're doing pretty good at that. We have a responsibility to spur one another on towards good works. I think we do a pretty good job of sowing, of causing each other to do good works. Are we growing closer to one another? I think we are. I think we're doing a pretty good job of growing closer to one another. But is that the issue? Are we not supposed also to be closer, growing closer to God? Are we not supposed to be growing in the Spirit? Are we helping each other to grow closer to God? Do we study God's Word together? Do we pray together? Do we confess our faults to one another? And to an extent we do. Then what about those that are outside our fellowship? Are we are we inviting others to come to events? Well, yes, we are doing a pretty good job with that. Our special events are reasonably well attended. We have, uh, just look at all the people that came to our trunk or treat, or look at the people that come to our VBS. Look at how many people we have in our financial peace, into our grief counseling, to all the different things that we do. Lots of outsiders come, but do they come the next Sunday? Do we make the connection with them that's such that we get them to come to church with us? Are many of them baptized? Are we studying with somebody? How long has it been? I'm, I'm so grateful for the works of the, those who are teaching people to better their English by just simply reading from God's Word and, and look at the fruit that comes from that, just simply from reading from God's Word. If I was to give us a grade, as we look as on the words that we're doing, things that we're doing that are inward, focusing inward, fellowship, and the good works that we do, we're, we're doing reasonably well. 
But if I was to look, are we bringing people to the Christ? And is that not our primary mission? I, I fear that we're not doing too well there. You know, in Revelations, the third chapter, John wrote to the church in Laodicea, says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. That's my fear is that we're becoming lukewarm. Clearly, none of us would argue we're not converting many people. We're not bringing a whole lot of folks to the Lord. Now, we're, in a fort we're fortunate to be in a congregation that has Oh, many great signs of life. Our, uh, but we're in a society that is glorifying tolerance. Our works and our fellowship that we have through in this congregation is such that we are bringing many talented people to this congregation. The talent that we have, the talent that's in this room tonight is immense. We have so many young families with great talent. We're blessed about that. Those of us that are a little bit older, ask yourself, what are we teaching these young families by our example? Do they see us studying and bringing people to the Christ? Do they see that in us? Those of us that are older, are we showing that example to these young families? And those young families, what are you showing to your children? Do your children see you studying with other people, trying to bring people to the Christ? You know, we, we do great on these, in our spurts of outreach when we do our short-range mission trips, our short-term mission trips. We're doing that well. But what about those people that are around us? Who's our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? We know the answer to that question. And on our watch, on our watch in this state, our society is growing more and more wicked and, and those that call attention to it are ostracized. And Our job, our job is to share the good news with those around us. There is right, and there is wrong, and there is, it's spelled out, I believe, pretty clearly in God's Word. There is an absolute. Look at, with me for just a minute over in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and Starting about verse 4, there's one body, there's one body, there's one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. And if we don't have that one body, that one God, people are... 
that don't have that are going to be lost. They're going to be, they are in the devil's camp. And there's just not any two ways about that. There's one Lord. There's one God. And to not have Him means we're in the wrong, we're in the other place. We need, I believe, we need to change what we've been doing, the way we are, as it relates particularly to the issue of not studying with other people. And you know, there's another word for that word change. And that word's a real simple word. That word is the word repent. I suspect that many of us, many of us, at one time or another have studied with somebody. If I asked for a show of hands, I think we'd have a pretty good show of hands if people at one time or another have studied with somebody else, studied God's Word. But then I'd ask you, how long has it been? I suspect that many of us have sat down with our brother or sister and, and we've confessed our own faults to that brother or sister. I suspect that we have done that. How long has it been? And I suspect that we've been concerned about a friend that wasn't faithful. And we've asked God to give us the wisdom to know how to approach that friend. And how long has that been? Also in Revelation, the third chapter in the church at Sardis. So he says, starting in verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you did. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, what you have, what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what time I'll come to you. But you know there's an answer. There's a simple solution. I am so thankful to God for our ministers for raising this particular issue with us, for calling to our attention the obvious fact that we're just simply not bringing many new souls or many new families to the one body, to the one spirit, to the one hope, to the one Lord, to the one faith, to the one baptism, to the one God our Father. And they've made that change for us a simple thing by simply saying, just do what we already know to do, and that's to study God's Word. You remember these little things? Have we taken these little things? Have you found somebody that you are going to study with? Have I? Are we, have we determined that, that we need to repent, that we need to change, that we need to bring people to the Christ? Now, David, what did it cost David? Well, he lost that little child. What have we lost in this interim, when we've not been bringing people to the we've lost whole families and their families and generations to come within those families. But there's still generations to come yet that we can bring to the God that we can save. Oh, I would just simply say we need to ask somebody, ask somebody to, to study. Somebody needs to study. And, and that's, pretty, that's a pretty simple thing. Who needs to study? Everybody. All of us. That's not a hard thing. Maybe, maybe you start by asking some of those Sunday morning Christians that's not here. Or like David, we can repent. Like Nathan, 
Who is the one that needs to bring somebody else to study? You're the man. Thank you for choosing to be a part of the Edmund congregation. You have so many choices in this area, so many good choices, and yet you choose to be here. And you choose to work alongside of us, and we do so appreciate that. At this time of new beginnings, as the new year rolls in, when you look in the mirror and when you are honest with yourself, what do you see in yourself? What is holding you back from being who God wants you to be? When you look in the mirror, what do you see as your greatest burdens? Is it sin like David? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is your greatest burden grief or disappointment? Is it addiction? Is it struggles? Is it insecurities? King David was called a man after God's own heart. Because God's grace was able to look into a, because of God's grace, he was able to look into a mirror and face his greatest burden, his own sin. As shepherds of this congregation, it is our responsibility to call each of you to look into a mirror and face your greatest burdens, and then for us to help you and to confront them and to walk side by side with you as you move closer to God. You are not alone. I'd like to follow up in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 7, where Andy left off. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You know this shocked David, right? He had to be shocked by that. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And then verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. The Bible is full of amazing stories like this to show us our need for God's truth, for God's grace, for his forgiveness, and for peace. So what comes to my mind first is what did David see when he looked in the mirror? I don't think he saw very much until Nathan showed up and actually showed him that he needed to look in the mirror. So when Nathan brought the mirror, what did David see? David saw sin, and it was a sin against the Lord. Surely it was also against Bathsheba, but it was really against the Lord. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our hearts deceive us, it deceived David. He needed help to see what was in his mirror. And I think some of us really tend to miss the point here in verses 7, 8, and 9. Nathan lays it out for him, and we tend to think, well, David's sin is a sexual sin. And of course, it is that, but it's way more than that. It's really the sexual part of that is just symptomatic. God is not saying, shame on you, David. Look at all the wives and concubines I've given you to sleep with, and none of these women pleased you. You could have attained another woman, just not one that was already married. That's not what God is saying. Nathan told him a story of the rich man and the poor man. 
God through Nathan is telling David all that he possesses, all that he has was given to him by God. And if he had needed more, God would have provided that. David's problem then is that his possessions became not gifts of God, but they became his own possessions. And he was so possessed with these things that he was unwilling to spend any of them. All he wanted was more and more. He began to take that which wasn't his to take, rather than to ask God, the divine giver, to give him more. We can see now why David wrote in Psalm 51, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We all have experiences, but only those experiences that are evaluated bring value. Just having an experience uh, really doesn't do that. So when we think about David not seeing things until Nathan showed up, why is it that he didn't see for himself until Nathan confronted him? I think it's kind of like that. You know, you take a shower, and these days you turn the hot water up really hot because it's cold. And I kept looking for heated seats, but I didn't get one in the auditorium, so we need to work on that. Um, when you turn the shower up really hot and it fogs the mirror, right? I think that's where David was. It's the sin of his lice that fogged that mirror. He just couldn't see what was going on. So Nathan confronts him, he tells him the story, and he really just sets him up. And what does David do? David sets his own trap. He does. He says, uh, after hearing this story, he says, this man needs to die. And, of course, Nathan says, you are the man. And in stunned silence, David then had to listen to all the charges against him. I find it interesting that we are often most harsh, most hard, the hardest on people who have our own same sin and weakness. David was. He said, this man must die. Uh, if he'd known he's talking about himself, I don't know if he would have quite said that. But David couldn't see what was in the mirror because he, like many of us, was living in a fog. And it was a fog that is distracted by the fury of the moment, the fury of doing all the things that we have to do that make us so busy when the urgent pushes out the important. We need help seeing. So I ask you, who is your Nathan? Who is it that helps you see? Hopefully it is someone. Hopefully you have a Nathan. Maybe it's one of, one of us, one of your shepherds. Maybe it's a class leader in our classes that are so strong. Maybe it's just God's Word and the Holy Spirit working through that. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Uh, maybe it's your parent, one of the ministers. I hope you have someone who is a, who is a Nathan. I find it interesting that uh, Nathan was really a friend of David's. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 14, it lists some of David's sons. Uh, the son right before Solomon, his name is Nathan. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think Nathan was one of his true friends, and that's how Nathan got away with telling the king he did a bad thing. David's sin, however, is not an excuse for us. It's not an excuse for us to sin and allow grace and love to work. But it is a warning to show us how capable we are of sin. Sin is dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. We need to flee it at all costs. So why did Nathan confront David? Well, first of all, verse 1, God sent him. God will do that. He will send things into our lives to help us. He also did it to help David get right with God. A lot of God's grace are the difficult things in life, and those are the things 
that point us when we look in the mirror and we see things that point us back to God. Part of that is the confession of sin. Nathan wanted David to confess his sin, and he did. He also wanted David to submit to the way God was dealing with him. And we, like that, need to submit to the, God, the way God is dealing with us. And that is consequences. We reap what we sow, and David will as well. So now that we've wiped away the steam off of the, of the mirror, what do we see when we look in the mirror? My wife would tell you that I need to look a little harder and find my razor. But uh, I think there's really two things I want us to think about when we look in the mirror. I want us to think about what we see as individuals. We all have our own struggles. We all have our own things that we need to think about. But I also want us to think about that, much like Mark was talking about, as a congregation. What is it that we need to see as a congregation uh, in the mirror that we need to change, that we need to correct, that we need to do better at? As individuals, are we learning to live and to be like Jesus? As a community of the Lord, as the bride of Christ, are we living that Acts 2 church? Are we taking the gospel to people? So when you look in the mirror, do you see love turned outward? Do you have an outward mindset towards the world? Or do you see selfishness that's only turned inward? I want to challenge you when you feel a pang of conscience, your conscience telling you you need to do something for someone right then, right there, not to turn away and ignore it, to begin to do the things your conscience is calling you to do. Stop ignoring it. Do it. When you look in the mirror, do you see unity or do you see division? When you look in the mirror, are you distracted? Do you see someone who's distracted or do you see someone who is focused on God's presence? In the mirror, do you see someone who is overwhelmed, sad and depressed, or joyful at God's grace in the midst of all our struggles? When you look in the mirror, do you see someone who's fearful, who's anxious, or someone who is at peace in God's love? In the mirror, do you see someone who's wanting and wishing or someone who is doing? Do you see anger and resentment at the disappointments and the struggles of life, at politics? Or do you see kindness, understanding, and empathy? Do you see rebelliousness or obedience to the commands of God? Do you see someone who is in a rut, just struggling to get out, or do you see someone who obeys the commands of God and is a pioneer for the Lord to bring the word to others? I hope you see what God sees. I hope you see yourself as a daughter of the King, as a son of our Lord. I hope you see this community as the bride of Christ. I just want to have a little conversation with you. Um, perhaps this is a conversation that you've had with somebody else or somebody else has had with you or maybe it's a conversation you need to be prepared to have with somebody. But I think that the hope that we find in this story about David is overwhelming. How can you take a person who has lusted, committed adultery, been deceptive and murdered, how can we see that person as a man after God's own heart? We all at times have sins, sin in our lives, 
And I think we can see from David's story how sin can take over and how one sin leads to another, which leads to another. And we can be blind to that. But I think what we see in David that makes him special is how he responded when he was confronted with his sin. David was humble and contrite and repented and sought God's forgiveness. And we see this attitude throughout the Psalms, the, the attitude that, that David had toward God. And I think that if to further understand that uh, as a contrast, we don't need to look any further than the previous king. If we look at King Saul, when he was confronted with his sin, how did he respond? He responded with arrogance and with pride and defensiveness. So what we see here